ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Beats of the Market podcast. I'm your host, Ed Martin. I'm excited to be back. It has been a long time. I will admit I have been traveling quite a bit. I was in Austria last weekend. I'll be in Poland this weekend. In two weeks, I'll be in the UK for about 10 days. Thanks so much for keeping up with everything, for your support, kind words, and inspiration. It is Thursday, 1st of December. Last month, we are recording episode 21 of the Beats of the Market podcast. Man, what a crazy month it has been watching this FTX and crypto exchange collapse make its way to the major headlines. On today's episode, I will be talking a little bit about Ed Thorpe who is considered to be the godfather of quant-based investing. That's quantitative investing, which uses statistics and probability to gain an edge in markets. He is also accredited with the first ever blackjack card counting system. He is a mathematician and a very interesting person. He is believed to be one of the few people that calculated the probability of him dying during COVID, which I find quite interesting. So I'll cover a little bit about him. As with our previous episodes, I'm going to cover a number of data points and try and get an overall sense of the macro environment here, just the overall economy. I will be covering unemployment data and recession statistics. We will once again cover Sam Bankman-Fried. In the last episode, I called him Sam Bankman Fried. That's probably because he fried everyone's money. We will cover a new group of Russians who have gone missing. So there was a previous episode we did where I covered a number of oligarchs that were falling out of hospital windows, being thrown off boats. Uh, One family was cut up with an axe in their Spain villa that was related to Luke Oil, I believe, or Gazprom, someone on the board or one of the directors, if I remember correctly. Uh, This time, it's making its way into the crypto oligarch or the, what's a word we could call them? I guess the uh, crypto tycoon, if you want to call them that. I will be covering a bit of China reopening and a little bit of statistics from The Economist on Chinese demand. I will speak a little bit, not much, about currency debasement from a historical point of view. I did finish Noriel Rubini, I believe is his name. The, uh, they call him Dr. Doom. I finished his book, which was Mega Threats, 
and I'll be the first to say it was a bit too doom and gloomy for me. Remember that Noriel Rubini was the or is the economist from Milan who worked under the Obama administration and in 2005 also came out and said that the mortgage bonds in the U.S. market looked toxic and it would lead to a contagion effect. They told him he was an idiot. They nicknamed him Dr. Doom, and we all know how that played out. In his book, he has identified 10 or 11 mega threats in the economy that are more global than isolated. And geez, I would just say I hope he's wrong about what he is predicting because it is not a nice looking future from his research that he's collected and he has done very, very good research. Anyway, I think a lot of people can kind of sense that some sort of slowdown or higher structural inflation environment is here to stay for some time. That's probably not surprising, but I want to move away from the doom and gloom. I like to kind of live in my Disneyland bubble sometimes and have exposure to both sides of the economic prospectus, whether that is a growth argument or a slowdown argument. But whatever is coming, it's pretty much out of our control anyway, so you might as well just find a way to navigate it the best of your ability. Anyway, the last thing I'll say about Noriel is he is a fantastic researcher. He has done the work for us. If you are interested in seeing where the global economy could go over the next five to 10 years, I think that book is a good read. It covers AI, it covers aging demographics. There's a lot of different content in there. There's some good takeaways. I would be lying if I said it wasn't an interesting read. For this week, I have the myth of the rational market, a history of risk, reward, and delusion on Wall Street that was written by Justin Fox, which is a history of stock markets from the 1900s up to now. That has proven to be very, very interesting. There, I'm kind of on the section right now over the 1920s, which is a fascinating time. And it covers some of the responses from the government that led to more damage. It also covers the people who made grave mistakes, some of the fund managers who got blown up and the mistakes that they made. It's kind of the idea that to know where we are, you need to know where we went. And so I'm building up my historical background or trying to by reading as many books about economics, currency, investing history, interest rate policy, how the markets responded, and it has proven to be very, very interesting. I will cover that book on the next episode. The other books that I have lined up are Capital Returns, which I have read about a fourth of so far that is navigating different capital cycles, basically just buying what's hated. It is the adventure or the journey of a fund manager from 2005 to 2016 and how they identified capital cycles which is where you if there's one quote from the book that i could say kind of nails it it's from an investment perspective the trick is to avoid investing in sectors or markets where investment spending is unduly elevated and competition is fierce and to put one's money to work where capital expenditure is depressed 
competitive conditions are, are more favorable. And as a result, prospective investment returns are higher. So when he says avoid sectors where the investment spending is unduly elevated and competition is fierce, the first thing that comes to my head is electric vehicles. So that would be avoiding Tesla. I also think of the renewable space. Solar, those companies look very similar to dot-com valuations where they're trading some of them 100, 120 times forward price to earnings multiples. It makes no sense. The investment spending is already extremely elevated there. And those ESG funds are just now getting to the point where they're starting to be shut down. The other side where it's depressed, competition conditions are more favorable, are places like coal, energy, fossil fuels, the things that are completely hated. I think you guys know how I feel about this. I don't really give a shit about the politics. I'm in it to make money, and uh, I don't need to be fed bullshit from charlatans. If the world is short something, I want to be long it, and it is really as simple as that. The next book I have is The Invisible Hand, which I haven't gone through yet. That is the top hedge funds trading on bubbles, crashes, and real money. There's also a foreword from Noriel Rubini, the author of um, Mega Threats, and I have Last Deep Work, which is Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. This was recommended for my friend Niels. Shout out to Niels for recommending the book. I'm excited to dig into that. Just kind of switch it up and get off the whole economic and investing reading and get into something a bit more productive and uh, exciting. So that's the lineup for reading over the next couple of weeks here. I will use the nice relaxing holidays to dig through that content. I want to take this time now to cover Ed Thorpe, who is the current president of Thorpe and Associates. That is a Newport Beach based quant fund. Now in May of 98, Thorpe reported his personal investments and he annualized 20% CAGR over 28 years. That is absolutely incredible. That means he compounded 20% for nearly 30 years and absolutely destroyed the markets. Now, Thorpe received his PhD in mathematics from the University of California, LA. He worked at MIT from 59 to 61, and he was a professor at New Mexico State University from 61 to 65. He then joined the University of California became a professor of mathematics from 65 to 77 and a professor of mathematics and finance following that. In 91, Thorpe was a early skeptic of Bernie Madoff. He basically knew that something wasn't right. And this is also the same as Jim Simons, who is a phenomenal mathematician who is on could be compared to Ed Thorpe. He is the current owner He's not the CEO, he's the owner and kind of operator of the Renaissance Technology Quant Fund, which is really just the all-time best performing fund. It has done something like average 70% over 20 years, I believe. I'll have to get the numbers on that. And that is a quant statistics-based strategy. It does not want anyone from Wall Street finance or investing in its firm. It strictly hires advanced mathematicians that look at things like Markov models, which are hidden probability statistics and other models that try to gauge where sentiment is going. And it is also AI-based. It is built from a man, well, it was assisted in its construction 
from a man named uh, Robert Mercer, who was the chief engineer of the Google Speak, Google language systems. He almost single-handedly built the Google language translator in his basement. He is a very, very weird cat. He was one of the chief programmers for IBM. He took that technology and together they kind of built this quant-based hedge fund with mathematicians and computer scientists. Robert Mercer was also the largest donator to the Trump campaign. His daughter, I believe her name's Rachel Mercer, was the one who founded Breibart. They also got heavily involved in Cambridge Analytica, which was data mining and researching for well, using data to influence elections. Cambridge Analytica is quite a, a controversial British firm. They went into Africa and intervened in some of the election processes and used social media campaigns to create ocean profiles, which is a basic personality complex. So if you are trait neurotic, meaning that you are more likely to worry, they would show you things that scare you to push you towards a particular political outcome, which I think in this day and age shouldn't surprise anyone at all. I bring up Robert Mercer because his strategy and background is quite similar to Ed Thorpe's. Ed Thorpe is not a, uh, a political, he's not politically involved. And what's interesting about Robert Mercer is that his boss, the owner of the Renaissance Fund, is one of the largest Clinton supporters. And so that must be a very strange office to work in where you have these mega rich billionaires who are influ attempting to influence campaign decisions and, po and political framework and also just making a shitload of money at the same time. I just think it's very uh, interesting. So all three of these people have quite a bit in common. They are all quants. They are all very good at math. Robert Mercer is different in the sense that he's very loud and politically active. He is not afraid to speak his views. Jim Simons is a bit more quiet and introverted, although he did get fired from the NSA. He worked for the NSA as a, for some time during Vietnam as a cryptologist. He spoke to the media and said he was against the war and didn't agree with what they were doing. That would later lead to General Taylor firing him from that position where he would take a teaching position at Stony Brook. And Ed Thorpe, is also a math background who taught at MIT for some time. They all like games. They all like poker. They are a fan of statistics and probability and using those type of game theories to create bets in the market. There's a few things that Ed makes Ed Thorpe interesting alongside these other two actors. The first was that he invented the first card counting system. He successfully returned 20% compounding over 30 years, which is a fantastic return. It's not as good as the Renaissance Fund, but Ed didn't hire computer scientists and data mathematicians to analyze all this. He basically did it on his own. He has created a list of things to look for when going for the markets. He says you need to wait for big pitches. Your position sizing is critical, which in my opinion is the most difficult aspect of investing, determining how much money to put on a position essentially, or what portfolio weight a position could be. Always respect leverage. Find your edge. Remember that markets are inefficient. Avoid bets that have high correlation. So if you have 
a portfolio. It shouldn't be an only oil portfolio or only tech or only renewables. It should have correlations between one and negative one. As I have said before, math and statistics are not my my background. I'm not strong in those subjects. I do find them very interesting. So you do have to put a bit of work in to figure this out. But correlation is the statistical measure that describes the size and direction between two variables. And uh, it's a expression of their directional relationship for the most part. Now, it's difficult to calculate correlation if you're doing it by hand or doing it with a calculator. Excel can do most of that work for you. But what there's much, much easier ways to do this. One way to track asset correlation is to go on Google, find a stock or investment asset correlation calculator and just plug in the tickers and it will measure that. And so what that means is if a if two assets or two investments have a correlation of one, it means they move together. So with one, they're moving kind of hand in hand. So the SPY, so the SPY, the spider, the top 500 companies and the NASDAQ probably have a correlation very close to one. What you want is to have a balance and to add things that that create a negative correlation. So when an asset is minus one to another asset, that means it moves against it. And so historically, bonds would move against stocks. And as the market goes up, bonds go down. Now, that is just not really the case anymore at all. We've had positive correlation between bonds and stocks. And so that's not really a great strategy. You need to look over a longer data set. And what we're talking about with these guys like Simons and Ed Thorpe is that their correlation matrices probably have 50 to 100 years of historical data. And you can track the correlation of those assets over multiple cycles because when we have positive correlation between stocks and bonds and bonds are selling off you don't have a hedge now you can short you can go short a particular investment and that will create a negative correlation anyway so those are just some thoughts on that if you're confused by that that's probably the very very basic intro type of stuff that they're doing i can't even imagine what type of math they're looking at but it's just some thoughts to kind of keep in mind that you don't it, it just goes to speak to don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's really just another version of that. Or if you do put all your eggs in one basket and you're concentrated, look at that basket very carefully. So let's move into macro data here. We had the Atlanta Fed saying that the median housing payment or medium uh, income for for housing payments is now 46% of, of US income. That is the highest since 2006. So we are starting to see a very high level of income go towards these mortgage payments, and that is the effect of higher interest rates, which is also slowing down the home builders and taking some hot air out of these home prices. In our meeting yesterday, our notes from Jerome Powell, the current Fed of the U.S., he said in directly that there is a housing bubble and they are pretty much working on it. So straight from, uh, straight from the horse's mouth there. When we're talking about a recession or what could potentially come around the corner, we have the smallest increase in U.S. employment during an official recession is 1.6%. That was in 1961, and that would be uh, expecting something as bad as that by 2024. That's just not realistic. Looking at those labor markets, the expectation, the average expectation for a recession based on jobless claims 
would be 418,000 jobless claims. We are at 200K, so we are not even halfway there to the uh, the average claims dating back on the data series to 2000 that would be needed to make a recession actually feel, uh, to, to for it to be noticeable at an average level for the most part. So what that means is the labor market is very tight. We uh, are in early innings here, so don't jump the gun. We still have record corporate profits coming out, and uh, everybody's kind of talking about recession. It reminds me of this quote from Gil Scott Heron. He said, the revolution will not be televised. The recession is not going to be televised either. It will kind of come and slap everybody. Typically, when everyone is trying to front run a recession trade, I don't think it's really going to play out like that. Anyway, we had the COVID stimulus that led to two point. Uh, from two to 3.5 million excess retirements in the workforce. That was that is creating a shortfall, a massive shortfall in the labor market. So we're basically short somewhere between two and three and a half million jobs. That was based on home prices going bananas and retirees just basically saying, fuck this, I'm done. I made a bunch of money. And uh, so they have a lot of work to do on that. That is attributed to the tight labor market. That's also a demographic um, tailwind for the boomers kind of getting out. They are at peak retirement age now. So we are seeing that affect the labor market, which creates wage inflation, so structural inflation. And that is also a theme that Noriel Rubini has been discussing in his aging demographics. And it is, for the most part, a global trend. It is not unique to the U.S. So we had the 10-year and three-month treasury curve, uh, treasury yield invert that has created a high probability of a quarter two, quarter three, 2023 recession. I think it might be a little bit further, more towards 2024 because of the tight labor market. And that probability metric, the 10-year and three-month treasury inversion, has a 100% probability hit rate. It has predicted eight of the last recessions since 1965 when we are using that in the data set. So over 35 years, the 10-year yield on the US Treasury curve has been in a descending channel. That means for 35 years, the US has consistently been lowering interest rates to create a boom paper market. And now the 10-year is just beginning to peek its head out of that channel. That goes back to the first episode that we ever recorded of this podcast, where they were saying this inflation doesn't look like the 1970s. And now we have a channel on the 10-year that basically the interest rates that is needed to crush the inflation is confirming that we're, we're confirming it. We're the 10-year the yield curve is saying, hey, interest rates need to be higher to crush this inflation. We, we need to get to five. And uh, to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised to see seven, but it's seven. Basically, the U.S. goes bankrupt, so they're fucked. I don't know how they're going to work this out, but Jerome Powell will go in his little alphabet soup toolbox and figure something out. Uh, I, I honestly don't know how they get out of this, but I would assume that for the next five years, we'll see structurally higher inflation, and the yield curve is going to stay higher for longer unless something just completely breaks. On total debt levels, we have total U.S. household debt or, or total global debt, excuse me, at 290 trillion. That is up more than a third from a decade ago. And just think about the effect of 
33% more debt in 10 years on households with higher interest rates. It's mind-boggling to even consider all of those things. So let's move over on to uh, Europe and Germany here. We had BASF, chemical company, industrial powerhouse of the German industry. It was founded 157 years ago. They have announced by at the they have announced that by the end of October, they are going to permanently reduce their chemical output and uh, that is going to have an effect on the amount of available chemicals in the market. I will connect that point with China reopening in a later part of this episode. We also had Germany fighting the energy crisis with physical policy and them telling everyone that uh, inflation is, uh, is transitory. That's very interesting that they're going to turn the money printer on to subsidize energy payments I, I don't I don't really understand the the energy policy of Europe or the US to be totally honest, but it will make a nice story for the children. Since we are on energy, we have had that crude sell off on the China closures. We have also just begun to see the end of the strategic election drain, strategic petroleum reserve drain, the SPRs. And that is going to coincide with China's reopening and additional oil demand coming online at a time when the U.S. and Europe would greatly benefit from energy costs coming down. So I would say in the short to medium term, as we get this growth slowdown, we could see oil prices come down. My call on, on higher oil prices was wrong. I jumped the gun here a little bit, but I could see a sell-off in energy in the short term, and then the seasonality of winter and a potential Arctic breeze coming into Europe, pushing energy prices back up. We did see Europe get the storage completely filled up. It has been an unusually warm winter, which has crushed the forward curve of the LNG futures. So LNG prices have really fallen down a bit. That is Basically, count your lucky horses here for the warm weather. I'm not sure what's going to happen if we have cold winter in the December, January, February months combined with China reopening. That could potentially send oil prices quite high. And Europe still needs to get their additional energy online. We know that Germany has made a deal with Qatar to, uh, to buy energy from them. I think it's like a bad joke or something or very ironic that the Green Party and their energy policy have led to Germany buying buying fossil fuels from Qatar out of all places. But at this point, let's be realistic about it. I mean, it's all about keeping people warm and the lights on and it just needs to play out. And um, Europe would do well to get their energy online. And if the, uh, you know, I was looking at a megawatt output grid from Javier Blas, who is a commodity analyst for Bloomberg, and it was talking about how low winds had created a huge drop off in energy for the UK and how it really forced those backup generators and those gas power generators to fire up to make up for the shortfall and the lack of wind. And so this really just speaks again to Meredith Angwin's point. The wind doesn't blow all the time. The sun doesn't shine all the time. In fact, it's quite gray in Germany, and so they need to figure out how they're going to get around this. So to just wrap a bow on the energy conversation, we have the U.S. 
strategic petroleum reserve drain going offline that is now at a critical level where the U.S. cannot flood energy into the markets anymore, or at least it is becoming quite dangerous to do that if there was a natural disaster or hurricane or some sort of snowstorm in New England, something like that, it would create a national crisis if they didn't have the available stock energy to deal with that. So the SPR drain is going offline soon. They basically drain 60% of it in something like a year. So that uh, is not a sustainable strategy. We have the Russian energy embargo coming online December 5th. And we have China slowly reopening. We have seen the protest in China. And I want to speak just to a few points of the demand that China is going to be pushing into the market. So we have China needs 42% of the world's chemicals. They have uh, 38% of the world's demand for cars, 35% of the world's demand for semiconductors, 30%, this is surprising, for jewelry and bags. 30% construction equipment, 22% alcohol, and only 12% of the world's demand for soft drinks. So I guess they're not really drinking a whole lot of pop over there, as the northerners say, or Coke, whatever you want to call it. And this, these are all catalysts that affect the supply side. And so one of the things that I'm looking at with this thesis, with which is what I've kind of spoken to in that early quote from Capital Returns, is focus on the supply side. If you're looking at something relatively inelastic like energy, because people have to stay warm in winter and so on, then focus on the supply and that will tell you much more. That, that's a much easier way to figure out what's going on with those inventory levels. So I am looking closely at that. I am curious to see how the Chinese slowly get things back running. It has been a wild situation over there with the protests, but I have heard from some sources inside the country that it is not nearly as bad as people are saying. They will show you videos of maybe 12 or 15,000 protesters in a city of 20 million. And those people are probably getting their asses spanked by the CCP in some detention tent somewhere, or they will be locked up. And uh, since uh, legally in China, everything is linked to your uh, state ID, I don't think they're going to have a very fun time. So I would expect those protests to fizzle out and that demand to kind of slowly come back online. There are a few analysts and economists and also intelligence experts who have said that the U.S. is in a cold, an active cold war with China. I would agree with that. On a prior episode, it was about four or five episodes ago, I was talking about how the U.K. police, Scottish police, were responding to a fiber optic communication cable that was cut deep sea. And we also, of course, had the underwater implosion of, I believe it was NS2 or NS1. I can't remember which one it was at this point. There's so many of them going down. It's getting really difficult to keep track of this. I was listening to a podcast with Dr. Pippa Malmgrim, who was the uh, prior special assistant to former president, U.S. President George Bush, has come out and she's writing a Substack now where she publishes some of her previous information from the White House. And she is actively tracking... Uh, maybe along, I, I guess I'm kind of a nerd too, because I've also kind of been tracking this, these fiber optic cables that are going down all over Europe. It is really bizarre. We had an article that three of the West European fiber optic cables were cut in five different places along Barcelona. Those communications are, are basically wrapping around all of Africa 
And uh, there was an article from overclocking.com that said in three hours, uh, a large portion of their internet cables were cut. And I wanted to verify that article by going to the fiber optic provider Zscaler and checking their, their uh, post. And on October 19th at 8 o'clock, they announced that a large portion of their Africa and Europe fiber optic cables went down. They were able to repair them quite quickly. It took some time. It's really remarkable to me that they can go out and fix this. And we had the admiral, uh, new admiral of the UK uh, of uh, her, her Royal Navy, I guess that's uh, HMS, uh, Sir Tony Radican came out and directly warned Russia to stop severing cable lines as it was it will be seen as an act of war. So basically what he was saying is up in the Arctic, there is a uh, internet cable that provides the fastest internet in the world. And that is supposedly what the West uses to supply internet infrastructure to satellite transmissions. And I guess what was happening was the Russians were putting submarines underneath the ice and then they would have like a dive team, maybe not a dive team, but like they would cut them with the submarines and then they would get out of there. And it was like almost impossible to detect it. But this guy, um, Admiral uh, Tony Radican came out and said, stop it. We know you're doing it and called them out. And in response to this, the head chief of, of CENTCOM, the U.S. general, I can't remember his name, went on the largest U.S. nuclear-powered submarine and was stationed, I guess, somewhere in like the Mediterranean or somewhere, posted a picture on board the submarine, which is highly unusual. And it was like, hey, check me out. I'm on my submarine. And everyone's like, oh, cool. There's a, a U.S. Army general for CENTCOM that's on a, on a U.S. nuclear submarine in Europe. That's pretty cool. But Dr. Malmgrim is basically saying that wasn't a social media post. That was the U.S. putting their their power, their powerhouse nuclear, largest nuclear capable sub in in uh, in those waters with the head of CENTCOM and basically making a show of force and saying, stop fucking around, because if you keep doing this, uh, you know, we're going to have a show of force here. So I find that very interesting. So the technological technological warfare is definitely happening. It's a bit more under the radar. The news isn't covering it quite so much, but I would keep an eye on these fiber optic cables. I think there's an argument for increased infrastructure over the next decade here as these uh, little, you know, skirmishes or, or technolo technological battles um, continue. So let's talk a little bit about currency debasement in the book that I am reading now, The Myth of the Rational Market. They talk about currency debasement in the mid-16th century. It's uh, not anything new. Currency debasement has, has been a common, very, very common tactic. It is the end game for most uh, major currencies and empires. We had King Henry VIII and King Edward the uh, sixth systematically debased the currencies in the mid 16th century when income from seizing monarchies ran out. And this reminds me a little bit of the Roman Empire when they were so overexpanded and they started cutting holes in their coins, debasing their silver that way. UK Empire, the British Empire had, had a different way of doing it. They would uh, basically put really cheap copper or uh, cheap metals underneath the silver. And when you would, uh, after some time, when you would rub the silver, it would come off and there'd be this reddish tint under the coin. And so they wrote this, this poem about it and it said, these testins look red. How like you the same? Tis a token of grace. They blush for shame. And I love that because it kind of speaks 
to the point that as currency is debased, you also get this kind of shameful activity associated with it, whether it's through the government policy of debasing your money or whether currency debasement, whether through lower interest rates or the printing of money, whatever it might be, it creates an environment for fraud, whether it's the uh, the South Sea bubble in the UK, which eventually would blow up in the UK's face, or the uh, the Great Mississippi bubble, which is also a really, really interesting piece of history. I just wanted to speak to that, and, and that's going to segue into the last part of this episode, which is going to be basically an annihilation of Sam Bankman-Fried, who is for every day not arrested, just exposing the corruption and rot of the U.S. government and how absolutely disgusting the media has been handling this. They're still writing puff pieces about this guy saying, oh, he couldn't complete his goals of fixing the pandemic. I mean, what the fuck are they talking about? This guy is a complete fraudster. He needs to be in jail. Uh, Maybe they're preparing the Epstein cell for him. It wouldn't surprise me. And I mean, I would just say to Sam, how do you sleep at night knowing you've ruined the lives of all your investors? And I think he would probably say something like, oh, I sleep great with mattress coin. The new Ponzi shit coin guaranteed to lose 99% of your money in five minutes at the low cost of $5 million a coin. I mean, the guy is so fucking unemotional and uh, and just so naive about this whole thing. He was on a, a, in an interview the other day. It's obviously ripped out of his mind off amphetamines. And I mean, what is going on with the U.S.? The Washington Post has done a better job just recently exposing the COVID aid fraud. They wrote about five or six different articles, which I will link in the show notes here, explaining how these triple the the triple p the payroll protection loans that went out personal payroll protection loans that went out during covid to help employers got their way into these tech companies and crypto companies sam himself had $380,000 in triple p loans and now you just have to think the whole fucking thing needs to be investigated and to find the rot in the system now in the previous episode i i went on a bit of a rant against the Democrats because they had accepted so much of his funding. And that was wrong because Sam used Citizens United to back channel about $37 million to the Republican Party. And then he came out and publicly said, I donated about the same amount to both parties, but I didn't disclose how much I had, I had donated to the Republicans because the media would have been furious. My, uh, I don't know if disgust is right. My, my anger at the political system is, is not geared towards just one side. We had the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan out of, out of Canada, which uh, lost $95 million in the FTX collapse. I mean, I don't know who's doing due diligence over there. It's probably like a, a five-year-old with an Etch-A-Sketch or something. But anyone with a brain should have known not to, uh, especially a pension fund, for God's sakes, putting money in this, uh, in, in this furnace here. And then we had Sequoia Capital gave uh, Bankman a $214 million um, investment while he he was actively playing video games. He was playing video games during the pitch. And it's just unbelievable. We have Dan um, uh, Friedberg, who is the the lawyer of FTX, former co-worker of his, is Stuart Hogner, who works for Tether. 
And Tether is claiming that they received, supposedly received $36 billion from Alameda. And then in this, I mean, supposedly, allegedly they have that money. I, I doubt they have a penny of it. And then you have Binance refusing an audit. So you have all of this rot going right up to the core. I think the crypto e ecosystem is just fucked. It's a massive Ponzi. The whole thing's going to burn down. And so, so it should. But I would say for, for those that are Bitcoin maximalist or that believe in decentralized currency, this is what you want. You want the leverage out of the system. You want the bad actors out of the space and then let the asset survive on its own and the value will be discovered through natural price discovery. Once you have all this leverage and fraud out of the system, then we can finally get to see what it's really worth. For those who are seeing the market cap of these coins be obliterated, it's not a good, it's not a good argument for the stability of these assets. We also have, just on the cryptocurrency topic, we had the Russian billionaire, can't pronounce his first name, Tehran is his last name, T-A-R-A-N, died in a, a Monaco helicopter crash. And he is the third crypto tycoon to die suspiciously just in the past few months. He had uh, uh, Kulinder, who is the co-founder of a Hong Kong-based digital asset firm, Amber Group. He died on November 23rd. He was only 30 years old. And then we had another developer, uh, Nikolai uh, Mashigian. He drowned to death uh, in October. He was 29. So we've had three of these Russian uh, crypto crypto tycoons basically be uh, getting the same treatment as the oil tycoons. And we'll continue to see if they are falling off their boats, being thrown out of windows, or, or I should say falling out of windows. We've covered, uh, I mean, the, the whole SBF thing. What a mess. I mean, it, it's like, I, I just don't understand how the New York Times and previously the Washington Post are sitting here, oh, plans to, to fix the pandemic and all these puff pieces written on the guy. And it's like, hee hee, look at me. I'm Sam. I, I incinerated $10 billion to a massive fraud. Hee hee, nobody's going to arrest me. I'm, what the fuck, man? Uh, and if this guy's plane goes down in the Bermuda Triangle, it, it wouldn't surprise me a bit either with what's playing out with some of these, uh, you know, these, these bad actors. And I'd be lying if I said I feel bad about it. You know, I don't wish bad on anybody, but if, it, you know, the plane, or, you know, as I said in the previous episode, you get a weight on his head or he gets in the Epstein cell, fuck it, so be it. I mean, you ripped so many people off, destroyed pension funds, and just perpetrated a massive fraud. It, just to tie that on a bow, the rats are certainly jumping ship, and some of them appear to be thrown off their ships. Uh, and I will continue to monitor that. So that's enough of my rant for the FTX and crypto space. On this last segment, I'm just going to talk a bit about how I navigated the past month. I basically sold off some of my losers to uh, get my tax liability down for this year for my winners. I have put a tail hedge on, so a right tail, a right tail here would be the risk that the market rips higher or that we have a soft landing. And uh, the left tail risk is that we have uh, industrial slowdown, a stagflationary, inflationary bear market, which is uh, kind of my base case here. But I navigated my uh, the past month in my, my main portfolio 
by hedging my short positions with extremely short dated spy call options. So those zero DTE, I don't know if you guys remember, but I was talking about those options that have very low expiration dates. They are quite high risk. If you don't know what you're doing, you definitely need to know what you're doing anytime you're dealing with derivatives. Because we were talking about them, I don't like talking about things that I haven't done before. So I went in, I looked at the open interest and total volume in those markets to see what the liquidity looked like. There was about 40,000 of those contracts for the ones I was looking at being traded. And so I bought them. I wanted to see how they behaved. And I hedged by, so this past week, I, my short book was quite, uh, quite overweight. And I knew I had a lot of right tail risk. If Powell replaced the steel policy hammer with a velvet one, the market would rip. And I thought that was the lower probability case. But I also saw that everybody was so bearish and so sure that Powell was going to be strict here. And so I took the other side of the bet to tail hedge and I bought a 400 spy December 2nd call option um, right when the market opened. The market was red and I bought it and he came out. He came out, you know, I wouldn't call it dovish at all. A hike is not dovish, but the market took it that way. And that call by the end of the day, closed up 279%. So I closed it, took profits on that because 279% return in, in three hours is pretty good. And uh, I'm going to probably continue to use that short dated call uh, strategy to hedge the short book, which is also what Jim Chanos does for his short positions. And I have also put a tail hedge on uh, by shorting the US dollar. I am short the US dollar with a uh, by using put options. The volatility on those options for a lower dollar is very low. So the the implied volatility, the, the IV, is very low, which makes the option put very cheap. So I have bought a put option out till Jan 24, and I am essentially making a bet that once these rate heights, hikes stop, which I don't know how long that's going to be, but I will just have to see how it plays out, that the dollar is going to peak. I don't know if that's a permanent peak or whatever. It, there's there's more to be figured out here, and I'm not going to pretend to know the future, but I do want to tail hedge my portfolio, particularly at least that one. The rest of them are, are are not taking short positions, so they're long only. So the most they could lose is what they put in. When you're short, there's a bit more risk there. Hedged with short-dated call options for the indexes, tail hedged with bets against the dollar. So a weaker dollar would also create market rallies. So I am short that. And I also like that as an alpha trade because I do believe the dollar will get weaker naturally. So that is kind of a, a two for one deal. And I um, sold off AlterSource portfolio, which was the last name we had, which is a bet against the housing market. We did have the uh, mortgage um, uptick or default uptick and some pretty, uh, you know, I would say preliminary alarming numbers and uh, AltaSource rallied. Once that rally happened, I um, uh, was still getting greedy. So I was still on that. It was roughly a 40 or 50% gain on it. And uh, then I heard that the U.S. is going to underwrite up to a million dollars in loan losses. So basically, all the bad behavior is going to be awarded with um, blowjobs and ponies. 
So everyone that, that took out too much money is, is going to get uh, a free pass here. And I'm not okay holding, having a bet against the, uh, you know, against the, the borrower when the Fed is underwriting it. So I took profits on that position and I consolidated cash. I'm holding anywhere between 5 and 15% gold in those portfolios. I just prefer to have gold, especially with the recent news. If we see a true stock market sell-off, correlation and sell-offs typically go to one. That means everything sells off together, typically, as liquidity exits and the trap door opens. I don't know what would cause that, but it is a left-tail risk. And if that happens, I want to have the cash to be able to buy what I think is really valuable, whether it's a value stock, a... Um, it could be a growth name. It could be something like Verizon, T, Walmart, Costco, Google is a fantastic company. It just really depends on the uh, viciousness of the sell-off value and where the momentum is. And so that is how I navigated it by tax, tax loss harvesting, consolidating cash, really taking a good look at positions, being a bit like Rocky before the fight and just you know getting ready for a potential slowdown. And I'm asking myself, if this thing sells off 30 or 40%, would I buy it again? And if the answer is yes, then I'm, then I'm okay. And, uh, you know, having a 60, 70% cash position, uh, that, that makes the things a hell of a lot easier. That's pretty much it. I might try and get something out before the holidays. I can't make any promises. Anyway, that's it for me. Thank you so much for listening. If I don't hear from you or make an episode before the holidays, then I wish you much love to you and your family. should be construed as investment advice and some of the securities I talk about may be actively held.